Salam and welcome back everybody to our podcast, Unapologetic, The Third Narrative. Our original unauthentic initiative in light of the war in Israel and Gaza. A platform where we will share our identities, views, and experience from the ground. So Ibrahim, in the first episode, our pilot, we introduced the podcast, talked about what the third narrative that we preach is, and we talked about our vision with a few examples of what's going on in uh, in Gaza. And of course, we will delve into everything about the war today, uh, in today's episode. But how about we remind our viewers why uh, we're here? It's important to remind our listeners that uh, what is our vision and why we started this initiative. Because we're seeing, first of all, the importance of the West and uh, the involvement of the West in ending this war and the conflict overall. And what's happening right now is that the West has gone to a place of two, only two existing narratives, either pro-Israeli or pro-Palestinian. And it's an either or. You're one over the other. And we delved into it much more in detail in our pilot, for those who want to listen more about this black and white division that we've seen. And it's at the end of the day, it results in two things. One thing that's affecting us is aggravating for more war because you're pushing us to defeat each other. Mm -hmm. Either Israelis defeat Palestinians or Palestinians defeat Israelis. The second thing is much more closer to you in the West to home, which is the rise of Islamophobia and anti-Semitism. You're absolutely right. If we're looking at, if we look at each and every protest that's going on, part of it, some people are going with mal intentions. Some people are going to promote the hate that that they have towards the other side, whether that means promote, whether that means advocating to flatten Gaza, to turn it into a parking lot, remove Gaza from the map and name it Nova, which is the name of the festival that um, that w- th- that was victim to the attack of Hamas on sub- on October the seventh. And on the other side, there are people that are advocating to ho- to to hate towards Jews to remove Israel from the map, to attack all Jews everywhere, that Jews aren't safe anymore. And that is being translated in the real in the real world on actual hate crimes. A six-year-old was stabbed in Chicago in the beginning of the conflict. There are, in California, synagogues and Jewish-owned businesses are being vandalized. And the flyers of the kidnapped children are being, are being removed by pro-Palestinians. That- pisses me off i'm sorry like it doesn't, this particular one it doesn't help us if you if you think that removing a person who's kidnapped a person that was dead that's dead that's uh, that was tortured removing their missing persons p- poster if you think that helps the palestinian cause you're you're very much mistaken i don't understand how honestly like someone who is you know uh, in the west advocating for our uh, humanity and we want to talk about humanity, but you're eliminating somebody else, other, the other side's humanity. You know, these are not posters of soldiers. This is not, you know, things that has to do with a war and two th- sides battling. This is innocent people that were kidnapped from the, inside their homes. You know, it includes kids, kids uh, uh, grandmas. I cannot understand how someone thinks that this is a pro-Palestinian act to rip off the kidnap. You want to do something good? Post the pictures of the Palestinians that are dying. Don't eliminate the ones of the Israelis that are dying, because that's also true. We're not trying to hide the truth. These are the truths. People have been kidnapped. Palestinians are dying. And we should put all of these to the surface and not hide one instead of the other, but show everything. Since we're talking about the victims from both sides and the people that were kidnapped, the Israelis that were kidnapped, 
let's talk about the numbers. Let's bring statistics to the table. It's 240, right? You know, for uh, Gilad Shalit, uh, who was, uh, for those who don't know, who was an Israeli soldier and was kidnapped by Hamas, uh, a thousand and I think a thousand and twenty-seven prisoners uh, were released. Hamas prisoners were released by Israel for the exchange of one soldier. And now we're talking about the situation that people are are asking for an all for all. All for all, because we have about five thousand uh, Hamas uh, people in Israeli uh, um, jails, and the families of the hostages are saying, if you released one, and it was a soldier, we're in war. Uh, for the price of a thousand, what do we talk about? Two hundred and forty, which we don't know exactly the statistics of how many are uh, civilians and how many are soldiers, but there's a huge number of civilians. How do we not exchange those people? But the problem is, is I don't know. What do you think is going to happen with the kidnapped? When we hear about the numbers of Palestinians that are dying, that are perishing in Gaza, the do you think that the Israeli government knows how to differentiate between where the civilians are? Um, where the civilians are, where the hostage, their hostages are, and where Hamas is, they don't know. For all they know, they, they might have harmed their own civilians, and they're not putting that into consideration. And we have from the families, from the families, here protests, ceasefire, bring a, have a negotiation, bring all for all, their prisoners to our, for, for our kidnapped. And right now, like it, people are out for blood, both Hamas, which have bluntly said on air, that they don't, they're not, that they are willing to sacrifice or to pay the price of their of their civilians, that it's quote unquote not their responsibility. And that it's the responsibility of Israel to protect the Gazan civilians while the tunnels that they built is only for the Hamas operations alone. They're, that which is yeah, the, the the Hamas representative during a, during an interview said that the that the Gazans are that the Gazan civilians are in this situation due to the occupation, which makes it the international community's responsibility in addition to Israel, which is causing the occupation. And what, what about I, our own exactly, role to our own people? Exactly. If we're you know set aside that it's a terror organization, okay? Any militant group, and you're trying to go against an adversary. At least for me, the rational sense says that part of your strategy while you're building is to have something to protect your own citizens in the meantime. But to completely not even have it as part of your strategy and to say, well, I'm sorry, this is the price of our war. And well, you know what? I mean, it's it's the international community's responsibility in the first place. How dare you? You are part of these people. You came from these people. These people are in this situation partially, if not completely, because of your your actions. You know, yeah, we can, we're going to delve into the past and what led to us to where we are today. But as a, the governing body of Gaza, it's your responsibility as the governing body, 1000%. If you want to hold responsibility and being the one that takes the money and the support and everything into your uh, territory, you're supposed to be responsible for everything within your territory, including your people. And the same goes for the Israeli government. Whether it's right now in the current situation in Gaza, their responsibility to their kidnapped and and the civilians that are in Gaza that they're that are under their occupation, in addition to the big embarrassment that happened to the to to the IDF on the seventh of October. Absolutely. That's the responsibility of the Israeli government to protect their people. And they failed. They and also they're, they're continuing to fail. And they continue to fail to, uh, you know, even to provide the needs of the people who are being evacuated from, from towns in the north and in the south. It's, it's all the civilians. It's chaos. It's the civilians who picked up the slack. 
and are taking care of the things that the government has failed to do so far. And Absolutely. I think it's nice to highlight or something, a light of hope in this podcast to highlight how the people here, Arabs, Jews, Druze, everyone is coming together to help those affected, especially in the south and currently up north, people that are being evacuated, people that are displaced. Um, even Palestinians in, in the West Bank that are coming together to help provide those that were in Israel either for job purposes or for health reasons in Israeli hospitals that are now displaced because their their permit got uh, got canceled because of what happened on the 7th. And the Palestinian people also came came together beautifully to help those that were displaced. So this is where we are today. Let's talk about a little bit of history, how we got here. Now, I want to clarify, me and Ibrahim are not, nothing close to historians. We're not politicians. For me, at least, I don't even want to be a politician. Um, but we're going to share a few things from our understanding, from our experience and our own analysis. analysis. Um, and let's start from the Oslo process in 1993, where the Palestinian autonomy was created and uh, the Palestinian Authority came, uh, rose to power, and there was a creation of a process towards a two-state solution based on the uh, 67 borders. Yeah, I think uh, it really is the place, uh, in my opinion, to start to discuss it. it. Obviously, it doesn't refute everything that happened before. Absolutely. Uh, not 48, 67, 73. There's so many things that happened uh, throughout the history that can be brought up. But uh, to talk about particularly what's happening now on the involvement of the situation of Gaza now, I think it's important to start from Oslo and the creation of uh, some form of Palestinian autonomy under the Palestinian Authority. Because before that, the Palestinian uh, had one body that sort of uh, worked towards uh, the Palestinian needs. And it was the Palestinian Liberation uh, Organization, the PLO, which was at, at the time terror group that uh, did terror attacks from throughout even the, 60s, the 70s and 80s. And it was in Tunisia and it was in Lebanon and it moved and it settled at the end in the West Bank and Gaza. And they, at the end of the day, had to uh, uh, take down their arms to eliminate the military wing in order to enter uh, um, a political process. And that political process was envisioning basically a two-state solution, at the end of which were, will be a Palestinian state. But the first step was to create a Palestinian autonomy, to have some sort of a governing body that will, will run Palestinian lives. And the biggest problem is that this is the same autonomy that exists today. The, the, the idea was that Oslo was supposed, you know, everybody criticizes Oslo. A lot of people in Israel talk about how uh, a failure Oslo was. But the problem of Oslo is not Oslo, it's the continuation after Oslo. Mm -hmm. After creating an autonomy, you were supposed to be taking further steps until the point where the Palestinian people are able to fully govern themselves, which never happened. Why? because there were two people who, who were in that discussion on the, uh, the Oslo Accords in 93 and 95 to the, uh, the, the second Oslo. And it was between uh, the, uh, the Palestinian uh, leader at the time, Yasser Arafat, and the Prime Minister uh, Yitzhak Rabin, the Israeli Prime Minister. It's important to mention, you know, we talk about uh, um, Arafat and Rabin, and I think it's important first to mention uh, the, uh, um, that Rabin, before he was Prime Minister, you know, obviously, um, we, we said that uh, Arafat led the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, but uh, um, Rabin was uh, the head of the Israeli army. And there was a famous sentence by him from the period of the First Intifada, 
you know, when we had Palestinian kids throwing uh, stones at soldiers. And they asked him what to do with these kids. And his answer was break their arms and break their hands so they can't throw the rocks anymore. It was, he was very brutal. But I think that experience and being there, being in charge of a military, uh, being in, in, in a conflict, in a war, is the one that shifted his views is the one that made him realize that this can't continue like this. It, it, it can't work when we control these people's lives and we're in, inside controlling every aspect of their lives at the time before the creation of the PA. And he had to make that shift from cruelty to realizing that there is no other way but peace. And that's the most difficult thing to do. And honestly, I think Robin really was maybe the only person who fully 100% committed towards ending the conflict. And I think this is the problem that's highlighted the most is that no one really ever was fully committed to the process aside from him. If we look at even that period during Oslo, there were a lot of terror attacks uh, on buses in mm -hmm. Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. There were attempts by some groups of Palestinians to prevent Oslo from happening. And the same thing happened on the Jewish side. I mean, you know, the last thing that killed Oslo was the assassination of the Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin by an Israeli. And many argue that uh, that's when the Israeli left actually died. It died with Rabin. You know, that is a claim. And uh, it's interesting. I, I wonder if that's really true. What do you think about that? Do you feel that it's not the same left anymore that talks about, you know, wholesome peace at least? How do you see it? I think we as a whole, as a collective, whether you want to call that left, whether you want to call that Palestinians and Israelis, which we will touch upon during the, the episode when we're going to talk about peace building, we don't actually have a vision. We don't know what peace is. We don't, we, we, we think, we try to compare it to different conflicts, but we don't, we don't have an actual concrete, uh, like we say two-state solution, but everyone, even in the field, doesn't see it as, uh, as close as within, within hand's reach. So did it die with Robin? Did it not die with, um, with Robin? I don't know. I, I can't actually, I, I can't say, but I think everyone, I think, I think the Israeli left needs to check itself, whether it's in regards to the terminology that they use, whether they are fantasizing a utopia, because I think, I think we're, we're set into two extremes. The extreme that thinks, um, that is literally in la-la land and doesn't really know what the, what, the what reality the is. Real, the reality is, and they're in the extreme left and they're advocating for Palestinian rights and they, and they, um, are using the Palestinian the Palestinian terminology, which they don't know what it, what what that means. And then we have the other extreme, which is oh, just make that put them there. Let's have a two state solution so they can all be there, so they're not our problem Far anymore. Far away from us. Yes, which isn't a a peaceful solution. They just want to push people away. Want like it's not our problem anymore. Give us our borders. And there are people that claim to be left or are labeled as left and want uh, and want more land or want to recognize some settlements. Like it's the left has to check itself, and yes, there is um, there is something that did die with uh, with Robin. You know, now I'm like thinking about it, and I'm trying to pinpoint where I noticed. Uh, not, I wouldn't say the left died. I think there is a point in which the word peace died in Israel. Yeah, 
I remember, and, it, and I don't think it was Robin, to be honest. I think it was the second intifada. Because mm-hmm. I remember even right before the second intifada, there was still hope. And I, th- and I think it's important also to emphasize that when, when uh, Robin pushed for this, uh, for Oslo Accords, there was a vision and there was, you know, people latch onto hope. People want yep. hope. And when that was started, people latched onto it. People wanted to feel hopeful and it stretched. It didn't die with his murder. I remember in the early 2000s, in the Intifada and right even before the Intifada in 1999, something like this, when I was in school, we were still drawing doves and uh, you know olive branches and the word peace and, and writing it in Arabic and Hebrew and salam and shalom and all these things. And we had, you know, a, a visit of a, a Jewish school to our school and we went to their school. There was a, that still existed in the early 2000s. By the end of the Second Intifada, that died. And the word peace hasn't really existed since then in Israel. And that's part of the problem. But when people have that word, when they see that it exists, where there is a platform for it, when you give them real hope, they will take it. The problem is that we haven't given real hope. That's interesting. Do you think that, I don't think we mentioned, we didn't highlight who assassinated him. It was an extremist Israeli. Oh, we, I, I think I mentioned that he was Israeli, but yeah, I mean, it's important to mention that it was talking about an extremist uh, person. No, but I'm mentioning that, but do you think it would be, it's, they, it didn't die? Because it was an Israeli who killed Robin. Because as an extremist person, an extremist right wing, uh, terrorist that assassinated Robin. Um, but you're saying that it died during the Second Intifada, which wasn't of, quote unquote, their doing. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, and when when Robin died, I mean, in the same time, there were also like, uh, you know, we had extreme uh, Jewish person who assassinated and killed Robin. And we had the extreme Palestinians who were doing terror bombings of uh, buses, mm-hmm. trying to prevent it also from happening. People, on extremists on both sides, would try to attempt and to prevent the peace. What we have to do is to keep on going regardless of those voices. And I think that's the uh, what Robin did and no one was able to do it since. Mm-hmm. Because Robin and people, uh, uh, you know, um, talk to him about the fact that how are you doing this in the middle of terror attacks? But he understood that you don't make peace with your friends. You make him with your enemies. <laughs> and he was going to negotiate with an enemy. And he was aware that part of the people within that enemy group are going to try to prevent it, but he will not let them. And he will not let the extremists on his side do the same. And unfortunately, he's not with us anymore because that was the last vision that we had for a real solution for a very long time. Which I think is a good transition to... To what happened after, you know, like uh, uh, Arafat was the counterpart and Arafat uh, died in 2004. Mm -hmm. And after Arafat's death, there was a question, there was a vacuum. Who controls the Palestinian Authority? Mm -hmm. And the problem then was that uh, the United States uh, pushed for democratic elections in, in in the Palestinian Authority. Now... The U.S. always has this vision when it comes to a country, especially some for some reason, it happens a lot in the Middle East. <laughs> they come to a country, um, fight, control, and then they say, well, we're going to drop this thing for you guys called democracy. It worked for us perfectly. You should do the same. Here you go. 
And, you know, they did that for uh, Iraq as well, uh, and it failed. The government that was uh, uh, supported by uh, the, the U.S. collapsed. And here they also tried to push for it. And they what they did was try to push for elections. And guess who won? Hamas won the Hamas. election. <laughs> and Israel obviously was against the elections in the first place. I think Israel was aware of what was going to happen after that. And that division, it could be very dangerous. And it was. Because when Hamas won, the United States suddenly woke up and was like, oh, wait a second, you guys still have a military uh, wing, which Fatah, the, the, the former PLO, doesn't. PA? PLO. Former yeah, but in order for them to fill in for the PA, which... Yeah, so yeah. like, they, in order to turn from PLO to PA, they needed to eliminate their military wing. And now... Hamas. Hamas supposedly were, had to do the same, and, well, Hamas said, of course, not. And then, uh, and that was the condition for the continuation of, uh, of aid to the Palestinian Authority from the U.S. Who latched onto this? Fatah, of course, and we're like, hold on a second. If we're going to be taking all the money and the support from the U.S., you cannot run and you cannot be the governing body, even though you won the elections. We don't care. You don't qualify. You don't exactly. You don't qualify. They took it as the best excuse. You disqualify, so we take literally, control. literally. I couldn't sum it better, and that resulted in a war. I mean, you know, I, uh, they 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 say it. It's the Fatah Hamas conflict. I'm sorry, it was a Palestinian civil war. Mm-hmm. Everybody who's supportive of Fatah uh, in Gaza was either killed or uh, kicked out of Gaza and vice versa for Hamas. Right now in, in the West Bank, you have some people who are you know, personally supportive of Hamas, but not as an organization. As an organization doesn't exist anymore, but it did before, but it was eradicated. Both sides made sure that they control one half of the Palestinian... They eliminated the, pres- the presence of, of the, the other. other side. 1,000%. And uh, that leads us to the position where Hamas controls Gaza. Mm-hmm. It starts from those elections. This is the pitiful point. So wait, I have a question. Was there elections in Gaza and in the West Bank, or was it mutual mutual elections? It was elections in both as one. Mm-hmm. Okay. It wasn't two separate entities. That separation of two entities was created that, because of that. Yeah, and the separate the separation plays in the benefit of Israel to separate and control. Well, you know, uh, there is the divide and conquer uh, yeah. quote that we know, but uh, there is also another thing, and we'll delve more into how uh, particularly Netanyahu's governments were uh, utilized uh, Hamas's presence in Gaza uh, later on in this episode. But... Uh, what do you, you know, as someone who also uh, was raised in the U.S., um, what do you think of that? Elections in the Palestinian Authority at that time, is that the problem? Was that what created the issue in the first place? Of course not. Of course not. I think the, the states have the, has the habit to advertise democracy as the right for all, uh, solution fits all kind of, uh, kind of slogan. But it's completely false because you can't fix you can't fix different problems with the same solution. Uh, we're different people, and um, democracy is just a, a modern invention of the of the West, and it doesn't necessarily work for people in the Middle East. I mean, we can see prospering. You can say whatever you want about uh, about the Middle East, but we can see uh, Qatar. We can see the the UAE. They're they're flourishing. They're they're thriving. Uh, specifically, the UAE. Like, look at Dubai. Everyone wants to go and live in Dubai. Uh, it's literally almost, I think, the safest place on earth. Um, without being a democracy. Without being a democracy. 
Um, so to say that because democracy failed, that's the problem. No, democracy didn't fit. There was a problem before the introduction of democracy to to Hamas and uh, and Fatah or to to Palestine, um, and there was a problem after because democracy wasn't the fit solution. I mean, I'm a liberal woman. I want democracy, and I think both of us. I speak for both of us when I say that we would like to. We want democracy to flourish everywhere, including the Middle East. But what I'm trying to emphasize on is that democracy isn't just a state of governance. Its values, its uh, principles that must be inserted within communities and then implemented. It's a process. It's not something where you can come or say hey, I've got something for you and uh, it's going to work perfectly. You've never heard of it before. It's called democracy and you need to have demo democratic elections. It doesn't work that way. It needs to be implemented not only within the, politi the political people, but also within the, um, the population itself. Um, I mean, it's debatable whether the people there in the Middle East under dictator uh, under dictatorship that um, that we stated are flourishing if they're happy or not. Um, but we can say the same thing about uh, democracies like the states. Are they happy? It's the same. It's the same argument. So not one solution fits all, and democracy needs to be uh, introduced a value. A va introduced as a value. So what is the problem? What was it? The leadership of Arafat. I mean. You know, you, you uh, were raised in uh, Sheikh Jarrah, yeah. East Jerusalem, as someone who's from there. Um, what are the, the perceptions that you heard, even growing up, around you? How did people perceive uh, the Palestinian leadership as a whole? Mm -hmm. And uh, Arafat in specific, and maybe we'll ask about Abu Mazen later on in this episode, because <laughs> we'll have to delve into that a little bit. I'll I'll, t I'll answer that question as someone not only who who uh, grew up in East Jerusalem in Sheikh Jarrah but also someone who who studied in the West Bank in Al Quds University. So when it comes to Arafat, I don't think there's a hundred percent like there is no one opinion about him. There are people that to this day that I personally know that have his uh, poster in their house, uh, both in East Jerusalem and in the West Bank. Um, there are people that say that. Uh, the PA or Fatah used to be uh, a great, used to be great, but after the death of Arafat, people became corrupt. At the end of the day, Arafat was an icon. He was a symbol. Um, he showed um, a lot of things, a lot of, uh, like he tried to demonstrate, he tried to be Palestinian. He tried to be that word. He tried to be Mr. Palestine, I think. <laughs> That's, uh, it's also a book I read in yeah. the past. Uh, you know, he's tried to create Palestine in his image as a figure. Mm -hmm. And do you think because of that and his death, something of the Palestinian ident died with him? Is that, or did he leave too big of a vacuum? I think he he let. I think he he left big shoes to fill. Um, he was something very big in the Palestinian eye. Um, to this day, like in all in all universities, his uh, the day of his death, which is coming up, the eleventh eleven eleven eleventh of November, um, is uh, commemorated in Palestinian universities. And I remember as a kid that was, um, um, as a student in Al Quds universities, and I was also someone who was uh, removed from from politics. Um, I arrived to school one day and to university, and there was flags all over. 
Like I haven't seen this outside of Israel. Like usually it's like Israeli flags everywhere. And in, on campus, there was flags all over, classes canceled. Flags of Fatah. Of Fatah. Uh, flags of Fatah all over, um, people rallying, chanting. Um, there was a second of silence. Um, and that says a lot um, about, because it's um, the these kinds of organizations where Fatah and Hamas did come up in uh, did rise and their peak was or their origins are from universities. Uh, from universities. That's how they started. Um, and uh, I also was in university during an election in in the universities because there's like um, they're like hubs in you know in universities and they're managed by by Fatah by Hamas, uh, which also is something big that we can talk about in future in future episodes. Um, and. Again, I'm someone, I'm, I'm part of a family that's removed from things politically. But on that day of elections, I had a lot of people that I knew from East Jerusalem and from the West Bank that called me, hit me up and told me, you know, you're voting for Fatah, right? And these are people that I've never talked with politically. But so there's a place and that the, the name of Fatah isn't, yes, it's, it's gone towards a certain direction, but people's l devotion for uh, Abu Ammar, for Yasser Arafat, stayed. Another thing that Yasser Arafat did or attempted to do, I think it's debatable whether he did it successfully or not, but um, he in a way could talk to the international community in, in one way while showing the Palestinian community that they weren't uh, compromising on their identity and on their strength, but uh, doing people I can't. I can, the only way that I can that I can explain it is through giving an example of his speech to uh, to the to the General Assembly when he gave his famous speech of "I come bearing you in one hand uh, an olive branch and in the other hand uh, a freedom fighter's gun. Uh, don't let me." don't let the olive branch fall from my hand or something. And it sounds weird when it's in English, but. What that when you when you try and dissect this, it's talking to both the international community in a way and at the same time talking to the Palestinians in a way that don't make me drop the olive branch and I'll always be ready because I'm not compromising. So it shows it shows the Palestinians that we're not failing. We're not losing anything. It's a choice that we're making. We haven't failed. And that's something that, that's a rhetoric that the PA right now does not have. It lacks desperately. That's why they lost uh, the support of the, or any recognition from Palestinians, specifically in the West Bank. That's really fascinating because, uh, you know, the so-called leader after him uh, hasn't got even nearly the same admiration or support not or idealization. Uh, the current uh, 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 Palestinian uh, uh, leader, Abu Mazen, uh, is really bashed by the Palestinian community. I mean, he's not supported by anyone from what I see. Um, but I guess maybe that's from what you said. He had too big of a shoes to fill. But I think also that's part of the reason why maybe the best deal that ever was on the table was uh, denied by the Palestinian Authority, and it was in 2008. 2008, uh, the prime minister of the time, Ehud Olmert, was really going for a groundbreaking uh, this, uh, deal with the Palestinians. He was even willing to, to offer something that 
talk to Israelis today, it's not even on the table. It's not even cl close to being on the table. It's not, it's not negotiable. He was willing to split Jerusalem in half. Including, including the Western Wall and the Western Western Wall, Temple Mount, all the religious sites and the entire old city. Go mention that to any Israeli today and see what they respond. And no mention way. It, mention it to Palestinians today that don't know this fact. They would also be like, what? How was that? How did that not happen? And because it's important to mention two things, I think. There is in the Palestinian, uh, you know, both sides, and this is what we're trying to uh, um, emphasize here. Both sides have led us to the place of failing to create better future. Whether it will be uh, the Palestinians and the Israelis trying to sabotage Oslo in the 90s, whether it will be uh, the second intifada. And then you have the continuation of the settlements that have not have not stopped, but have been allowed to expand and sometimes even more encouraged to expand by the Israeli government. Always. I mean, you know, we've seen expansion of settlements since what they started in the 70s and 80s. And, you know, the only period that we saw a little bit of freeze was during Rabin's time, mm -hmm. his attempt to actually try to make a peace process. But other than that, every single government in history has expanded settlements. I think it's important to mention that, that this is an act from the Israeli side to prevent peace from happening, mm -hmm. to prevent two-state solution from happening. And it's not only the exist the, the existing uh, and continuation of building of settlements because wait it's not only that with the settlements comes settler violence which not just politically prevents a solution but inserts fear and a threat to the Palestinians of any Israeli existence. Yeah, one thousand percent. And even if you're trying to do the two state solution and you want to draw that line. It, 67 is like not not existent anymore mm -hmm. all the settlements are inside of it and even the way and the places that they're they're in are places to prevent a direct line from being created mm -hmm. so there is a clear attempt by the israeli government to prevent peace from happening whether it will be uh um the palestinian authority here also um not accepting a deal that was actually a good one because there was still an, a, a perception of all-or-nothing approach. Or Netanyahu's rule, which we'll get and, into uh, in a second. Uh, that he has needs his own time. <laughs> he needs his own section of the episode. Maintain the status quo till this day. That's the, 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 we will get right into that here. And, uh, you know, but right before that, Olmer tried to get, do this deal. And there was a perception of the Palestinian side of all-or-nothing. It's either we take all of Palestine back or we don't take anything at all. Mm -hmm. And... We'll never get that deal again. No one will ever raise that topic of splitting Jerusalem now. It's a missed opportunity. So I think there are two problems on the Palestinian side. One is the all or nothing approach. And the second problem is that, let's just put it this way. The Palestinian Authority doesn't want a two-state solution, in my opinion. Because it they're just cozy. doesn't. They're the Palestinian, okay. Yeah, exactly. They're sitting in a place where it's very comfortable on one hand. I'm the authority. I'm the governing body. I run this. Uh, uh, I run this area. I take all the support from the U.S., from the U.N., from Europe, from all over, and none of the responsibility, because anything that happens to my people, the first thing I'll say, well, I mean, I'm, we're I'm occupied. occupied. We're occupied. What do you want? It's Israel's fault. Go talk to Israel. I mean, we we saw it even from Hamas. Now they're saying about the targeting oh uh, civilians. They're saying, I'm sorry, it's Israel and the international community's fault. So it's the same thing. 
they take none of the responsibility and come on we know the amount of money that's getting to the west bank to the pa is ridiculous and at the end of the day it's going to private pockets it's going to the pockets of these people and not to the uh, and not to the population one more thing that i also heard and i hear from friends uh, particularly in the west bank that they're occupied twice mm-hmm. one is by the state of israel but the second one is that they're occupied by the pa The PA controls everything in their life. You want, if you want to open a business in the West Bank, you need the approval of the PA. And if you're not connected directly to the PA and if you don't have contacts, it's really hard for you to create a business. It's really hard for you to, to, uh, to uh, create a living uh, in dignity uh, in a really rough situation in the West Bank. Uh, the, the poverty is really high, but uh, the PA is living comfortably. And it's because they share none of the responsibility. I mean, I'd say the same, occupied twice as a woman, one by the Palestinian patriarchy and two by, uh, by Israel. <laughs> <laughs> But that's another story. <laughs> I can't argue with that one. Um, But I so, think it's the other person we should talk about. You know, we talked about the Palestinian side of uh, preventing uh, any peace process. And I think it's important to also discuss the other side that is also preventing, still till today, mm-hmm. preventing any discourse. Benjamin Netanyahu. The person who, since what year? Uh, since 2009. Since 2009 has kept us in limbo in the same, in the same situation of every year and so we have bombings with, uh, with Gaza and like kill, kill Hamas just enough, just enough that they stop but still exist. Why? Because it helps him maintain the status quo. It helps him. It kills a two-state solution. Each and every time it's brought up, it's there's Hamas. How? There's a terrorist organization. What do you want from us? And look, how, look at where it's led us. Look at where we are. Look how much suffering, how much blood has shed ever since. Not just now, not just Israeli and not just Palestinian. Since, since I don't know, which when was the first war? 2000? We had the first operation in Gaza was 2008. And then we had another one 2011 and another one 2014. And, and other than that, and now... And, and these, that, these are just the significant, significant ones. Yeah, Sometimes one it's in, twice or three times a year where Gaza gets bombed. Yeah, we had big one in 2021. Uh, and, uh, and in the middle, we had so many clashes. I mean, you're someone who's from Jerusalem. You know more than any of us the escalations that happened. While people in Tel Aviv and uh, in other areas of the country felt that they live in a facade position of, you know, we live in peace. It doesn't matter what happens where I don't see. Mm-hmm. But things were boiling. I mean, things happened in Jerusalem between the last military operation in Gaza in 2014 and today. Cool, every day. And what you should share with us a little bit with our audience, what, what, what was Jerusalem like? Because some people think that nothing happened and then out of nowhere we have another war. Mm-hmm. But there were so many signs that nothing is resolved. There's still a conflict. It's important to mention that, you know, it's not like since 2014 till today, there was this, you know, gap of quiet and out of nowhere. Now we have another escalation. There is a facade perception that, you know, things are quiet. There is some form of peace, but it, it wasn't really. Because if we look at uh, particularly where you're from, from Jerusalem and East Jerusalem, since 2014 till today, we always had things, uh, you know, And I would love for you to share with us uh, your experience uh, living there when it was a period of stabbings, of running people over with, uh, with cars, uh, civilians and soldiers. So these things were happening on the ground. Uh, and what was that like for you to be there? 
horrifying. Now that I look back at it, as a kid living through the through those conditions, it's no one should live like that. Even if even if you live even if you're going to school, you continue you continue a kind of a normal life where you grow up, get married, and life the circle of life continues. But I was in school and I had school trips being canceled or postponed. Why? Because there were t- constant terror attacks. There was a slogan of uh, which means uh, the, the, the Wednesday, Wednesday of running over or the Thursday of stabbings, where we would know, everyone would know, it would, would be all over. And it was also uh, a digital war that back then, that on this day, each and every week, something is going to happen. And sometimes because people expected it, those who are either depressed or are driven by political motives or have a shit ton of hate in their heart would use that as, okay, someone's gotta do it, so I'll do it. And as a kid, I would always be like scared on, on, my, on my tippy toes all the time because I would go to school by foot and someone who knows that when they commit a terror attack, that's the end of their life, either in life in prison or being uh, like they're going to killed die, being spot. killed on the spot. Um, they're not going to differentiate. They're not going to make 100% sure that the person that they're killing is the, the person that they want to kill. Um, so it was terrifying to know that. But at the same time, we were naive. We were in the mess of everything because this was normal. This happened every single day. This happened every single year. That's what we know to be true. And that's removing also the annual clock of Ramadan and the cat and mice uh, the Tom and Jerry back and forth between Israelis and Palestinians on Ramadan. Each and every person, each and every political person is looking at the clock when it nears Ramadan because they know that there's going to be as- escalation. And again, I don't know what to say, what come, what came first, the, um, the Palestinian, the Palestinian, um, Palestinians like be troublemakers or the, the, the Israeli, Uh, enticement or the Israeli enticement Uh, I can't say I think it's each and every incident is something new but it's known that Ramadan uh, there's there are going to be escalations I think what you said just now is probably the biggest um, indicator uh, that it's normal in a way I think it's exactly that that we created that these things this reality is our normal and we never paused and thought, how is that not normal? You know, uh, and I think that same thing happened to the Israelis. I mean, uh, you know, uh, which still makes me like wonder with everything that you're saying and these horrific uh, experiences and that it's a Wednesday of uh, running and Thursday of stabbing. How did the people in Israel continue to support uh, the government that uh, pretended to, you know, keep the keep them secure. I mean, uh, Bibi's slogan was Mr. Security. That's that was his uh, thing. That it he, was a facade. He's Mr. He, facade. He is the one. <laughs> now we discover something else, uh, being Mr. Facade. But uh, at that time, he was Mr. Security. How did people? And I'm I'm genuinely asking. I'm wondering how did people not see the things that are happening in East Jerusalem as an indicator that there's still a conflict that. We're still living in a conflict. This is not done. This is not resolved. How is that possible? I think it's easy to brainwash people. It's extremely easy to brainwash people through through the media, through uh, through news, to, through social media. Um, 
because you're directing them towards, you make them feel like they're one unit, like the pain of the other is because like the, the, the terrorist was neutralized. So the threat is gone. Um, they put up, they put up the, the siege next to, next to the bus stops. So you're protected when you wait for the bus. No one's going to ram you with a car. And it's even, it's even ridiculous how me and you were talking about this. Like it's nothing like we're talking about how to make pancakes. Um, but uh, also on the Palestinian side, the propaganda, like, yes, Netanyahu convinced everyone that they were safe, that uh, we live in this utopia where these villains want to hurt us, but we, we we're protecting ourselves and forgot to 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 promote to solving solving the problem, to actually putting an end to the suffering and not postponing and preventing and just preventing it. And on the same side, on the Palestinian, on the Palestinian, I grew up thinking that each and every terror attack was planted by the state of Israel. Wow. Yes. Each and every stabbing, I was convinced, and the entirety of my community was like, there's no way that's true. There's no way that's true. That this is staged? That, that it's this staged. Is fake. That it's staged. That this is fake news? Yeah, not that it's fake news, that the soldier planted the, planted the knife. I see what you're saying. So basically, they Each kill the guy. And like, oh, they dropped a knife because he never tried to stab anyone. And just make, just making the the making ourselves feel. I don't know what what the psychology of it is, but uh, up until I met an actual sister of uh, someone who worked with me um, in East Jerusalem, um, she was the sister of someone who committed a who committed an attack, and. And her sister survived. She's in she's in prison uh, till this day. And when I started talking to her, and I was like, like, she would say it but not say it. And everyone around her would say it's staged, it's staged, it's staged, and she would be completely silent. And that's when I realized I was like, we are living in such a facade. We are living in such a, a hoax of thinking each side is is playing the victim each and every time in their own way. It's easy to be the victim, you know. Uh, and it's easy to hate. And it's easy to hate. And I think, like you're saying, both sides are promoting that and both sides uh, have tried to promote an elimination of the other side, and not only by, by the people, but even to eliminate the idea. You know, there is um, questioning whether or not there is a Palestinian identity, which we touched upon last uh, episode, uh, questioning whether or not Israel, uh, 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 Jewish people have any at uh, attachment to this land mm -hmm. whatsoever, or do they even have a right to be here? There's always that uh, uh, elimination of the other side. And maybe that's a good way to uh, turn uh, to our first uh, segment for today. You read my mind. Fact-checking. Fact Okay, for this episode's fact-checking, we are going to talk about something that is um, tragic, to say, to say the least. The denial of both sides' suffering. You have many people that are uh, requesting both sides to provide evidence, uh, specifically the people that are denying what happened on the 7th of October. I think we can both confirm, both from people that we know, that perished, friends that are constantly in funerals, colleagues, co-workers that are constantly in funerals, the streets are empty. Um, and also from connections to, to medics, both Arab and Jewish medics, that can confirm the people that were burned, that can confirm the people that were killed, tortured, and beheaded. And 
I think we should once and for all say that you can't deny it. Denying it, the same as the fact as removing the posters, does not eliminate or make your suffering less. It doesn't. That happened. It's horrible. It's undescribable. And may God be with all the families of the victims and the, and the kidnapped. And may God be with all the, the families in Gaza right now. Um, but denying each other's suffering goes the same goes on for for the for the Gazans, for the the Israelis and also Arabs in the region, by the way, that are saying that are sending footage of um, of films and movies uh, saying that, oh, here are the, here's Pallywood. Do you know the term? I have never heard that one before. Pallywood, which means the uh, it's the Palestinian game where they. Where they, where they act like they're suffering, where they act that they're dying. And I've seen multiple tweets and it is shameful. From the Arab world. From the Arab world and other. Of course, it doesn't start in the Arab world. And maybe I, I think I'm being optimistic that it doesn't. But but it has reached the Arab world. It has reached the Arab world. It's uh, it's resurfacing again. I've seen I seen it. I see, I see it resurface each and every war. These this footage of documentary films. Uh, with cameras and people saying, oh, look, it's all fake or seeing photoshopped uh, images of uh, of martyrs, of people dying um, um, with smiles. Have you seen that before? The I'm smiles. And, um, you know, there's there's a slogan of uh, like being like the, we're always laughing um, that you are you're you're arrested with the peace uh, with the peace yes. sign and yes. smile that nothing can nothing can can break you can break you. Nothing breaks you. Um, so, so it was back, turned to, oh, you're smiling because uh, nothing is happening to you. You're faking it. You're faking it. And many people, um, I think to boost morale for some reason, uh, photoshopped like smiling images of, uh, of martyrs. Um, and I'm using martyrs because as a general term, I'm not like specifying what I'm talking about, but people that perish do uh, as victims. And Because we never know who... Yeah. That's part of the problem of you don't know if the dead is a civilian, uh, a combatant. You don't know. And these stats are not given to us by anyone. So both of them or all of them, uh, someone photoshopped smiles on them to boost morale or for some odd reason. I don't know. Um, and people saw, saw that and, oh, they photoshopped this picture. That means they photoshopped the all the pictures. It's all fake. None of it's fake. Don't trust Palestinians. They are not suffering. They're only trying to pull on the Arab leg to get money and on the American leg to get money. Um, and that's completely false. So do not undermine other people's suffering. It do does not make yours more legit and more painful and more worthy of a solution. 100%. I couldn't have said it any better. The next point that I would like your opinion on is I've seen a lot of Israeli influencers talk about Gaza wasn't occupied. We pulled out of Gaza. How can you call it an occupation? We even, we as in Israel, we even give Gaza water and electricity. What other state does that? What do you have to say for that? I mean, you know, uh, uh, we've gone a little bit through the history of what happened in Gaza. And I think one of the important things to mention, uh, first of all, I mean, the territory itself was controlled uh, by uh, Israel up until uh, pulling out of the settlements within the Gaza territory, something that happened in 2005. 
And uh, but regardless, when, when there are two things, when Israel pulled out of Gaza in 2005, first of all, it did so um, uh, unanimously and it did so one sided mm -hmm. and it didn't do it with an agreement with the Palestinian Authority. It did it for its own for, uh, 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 its own vision of if we pull away, we'll keep our people and we don't want to deal inside. We don't want to work inside Gaza. Um, we don't want to control internally within the, uh, the the Gazan Street, as it's still the, the the situation today in the West Bank. But the the problem is that even when you pull out, I mean, first of all, the territory is under your control. Um, even if you're not physically militarily there, it's it's you're controlling the territory. Uh, ever since '67, so water, electricity is under your. Uh, uh, un under your uh, 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 jurisdiction at the end of the day. Import, export, fishing, everything, Import, even their travel. And their travel. Uh, if you're not leaving from Egypt, any other way that you want to leave, you need the IDF's approval. So how is that not being uh, occupied. Uh, occupied? I can't leave if I don't have the approval of the IDF. and uh, Or if I want to uh, work... Uh, or if I want to, well, work, working in Israel is a, is a different example because you're going to a different territory. Mm -hmm. But fishing on your own area, fishing on your own territory, and you're we've seen limited. Many, we've seen many that died due to uh, fishing and either and accidentally going through like a little bit over the border and innocent civilians dying, being shot and targeted. Uh, to the to the cause of that because uh, there is restriction on how many people are allowed to go fish yeah uh, and that number changes if there's a clash going on Israel restricts fishing so you are controlling what's happening to them during times of war you are restricting or allowing them more so I'm sorry you didn't leave Gaza if you left Gaza uh, in terms of uh, soldiers foot on the ground it doesn't mean that you're not controlling the lives of these people still mm -hmm. and, and Gaza isn't a state and it's not a state. There is it's no only, state of Gaza. It's it's only a part of what was the PA, and obviously the the separation of the PA into two entities it, it created even a worse situation where Gaza is controlled by one entity, Hamas, and that eventually led to the siege on Gaza and the blockade that exists until today. Second and last segment is the terminology within the conflict. So when it comes to terminology within the conflict, there is one term that's very widely used when describing people of Israel, which is settlers, colonialists. Foreign colonialists, yes. even. Foreign colonialists. And yeah, we're here to discuss another issue that uh, um, comes from that, is that basically the argument of you're not from here. Mm -hmm. This is not yours. So Go back to Europe. So go back. Go back to Europe. And... You know, if we're looking at, uh, if if we are going back right now in time, into 1948, the majority of the Jewish people did come from Europe. And the vast majority at that time, at that time came from Europe. Because so the people from the Arab world came also later uh, from the Arab states. We understand where the term comes from. It, it came, yeah, it comes from the fact that these people came after uh, um, World War II and the Holocaust, and uh, they were the people who came here physically. But... Me and you are the third or fourth generation since the 1948 war. Mm -hmm. And just like we're third or fourth generation, for the Jewish people, for Israelis, there's also a third and fourth generation. And I think it's important to understand that even if the majority back then came 
to this land, regardless of their personal uh, religious association to it or not. You know, discussing a, a religious co connection to a land is very personal. There is no right and wrong in it. So you can't refute it or say that it's right or to say that it's wrong. It's, it's, it's solely personal. But if we look at the fact on the ground, 75 years ago, the majority of people came here for their own reason. But today, the vast majority of Israelis are natives to this land because they were born here, just like me and you were born here. Uh, our colleagues who are Jewish who live in Israel, that's the only reality they also know. They're not Europeans. They're not, they don't live in Europe. They don't mm -hmm. have European culture. They're Israelis with Israeli culture, with a, a reality that's the only one they also know, just like the one that we also know. Even if we are technically telling them to go back from they came from and they have roots in Europe, that doesn't mean that they have European citizenships. Some of them have been here through generation and generation as, a, as do we and have nowhere else to go. They can't pack up their bags. They only have Israeli citizenship. And of course, there are the, uh, there is a percentage that I don't think is very large um, that have the privilege of having American or European or somewhere else and can, can use that passport to, to leave, to flee during time of war and then come back and everything is fine. But, um, and people that can now, due to Germany changing its, changing its law and make, being a little bit more flexible, can also apply uh, to, to European citizenship. But people like us, like me and you, like other Israeli Jewish people, uh, don't have that those kinds of privileges. And that's why, it's another reason why we're here, because we have no other choice. We have nowhere else to go. And yeah. I say that a lot to my Israeli friends. You know, some of you have the opportunity, the option, because you have ancestry somewhere else as well. I don't. The only one I have is here. So that's the only, way, the only place I can be at. And that's the only reality I have. But I mean, you know, even the, a lot of these people who have dual citizenships, um, at the end of the day, they were born here mm -hmm. and raised here. So their reality and their their understanding of the world and the way that they see themselves is as Israeli, as, as someone who's from here. Like even if they go back to, the, to Germany, they go as Israelis. They don't mm -hmm. go as Germans. Because yeah. they also, like us, are born here. And that's the only reality they also know. This is home for them. It's home for all of us. And I think it's important to emphasize that we have something in common which is the love and passion to this land. And it shouldn't be, it's either my love to this land or yours. If we both love it, great, so let's take care of it. Why can't it be a reason of union? Of course, this is kind of a utopic way of, of thinking, but why, why, can't, why are we looking at either or? Why can't we celebrate the land that we love so much and actually honor it instead of slaughtering blood? On that point, I think there is a sense of ownership. And when you own, you don't care as much. Yeah. Meaning, and that's something a, a very close friend of mine uh, from, my, uh, from my master's, a friend from, a Jewish friend from Mexico, uh, Rodrigo, if you're listening, <laughs> uh, he was telling me, and I will never forget this sentence. And he said, Ibrahim, I don't understand. How are these, how do you have two uh, sets of people who feel so passionately about this place and they claim it as their own and not the other, but they both treat it as one giant trash bag. Because we do have a littering problem in both the Israeli and the Palestinian cultures. We love this land so much, but we don't take care of it. We, we go to any national park 
and see the, the littering and see how horrific it looks. But, but it's because of ownership. There is a sense of if it's mine, I can do whatever I want with it. Yeah. It, it comes from that. And we need to eradicate that. And we need to look at the, the, uh, the land in a completely different way of loving and a compassion to the land and not ownership and not mine. I can do whatever I want, but it's mine and yours and let's prosper it. Another term or kind of a slogan that's being used is from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. And I know we both have kind of different opinions or the same the same core opinion about it, but different emphasis that we put, I think. I think each and every Palestinian believes and dreams of a free Palestine, a free Palestine free of oppression, discrimination, dehumanization, occupation, elements of genocide and apartheid. And I think these are words that we shouldn't be afraid because we can have to use them because they we can see elements of all of them throughout the land. But for those who are chanting with the belief of, or with the meaning of saying from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free in the meanings of Palestine will be free of Israelis, of Jews. That's where we disagree. Yeah, I mean, and I've told you this before that I feel that uh, terms have very specific meanings. Um, and I admire how you are turning and own it, you know, reclaiming the phrase to a place where you feel connected to it and not to abash it completely. Because phrases do have specific meanings. And from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, means that it will, this land will become Palestine. And it's, uh, instead of being Israel, it will be Palestine. It's, so it, it goes back to the, the place of, I need to defeat the other side in order for myself to be free. My freedom is your destruction at the end. and. That's a problem for me because, especially for someone that is advocating for peace and a two-state solution, I can't abide by something that states for one side to have the whole thing versus the other. And it's not like we're lacking of uh, of slogans. Ibrahim today, you guys have to listen to this. Ibrahim today came up with something I have to say is brilliant. Listen, we don't need to use the same phrases because we from the peace camp can create our own phrases. And here is my new slogan for you. Freedom occupation, Palestine is a free nation. Snaps. <laughs> Say that. And this does not uh, eradicate a state of Israel next to it because we want Palestine to be a free state. Absolutely. And it doesn't have to go uh, at the expense of uh, uh, a neighboring state of Israel, which is the vision that me and you share uh, for this area, for this place. I'll add something that I think is very relatable to our Israeli and pro-Israeli listeners that that don't have the compassion to see what actually is behind uh, a free Palestine or uh, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Um, the nation state law, which states that the... Um, that the state of Israel is Jewish. Where the, the main homeland, homeland of the, Jewish, of the people. Jewish people. And as citizens, where are we? Exactly. Does that mean if you see a free Palestine or from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free as a threat, and then you come in, and you're okay with the nation state law of it being the land of the Jews, does that mean that you see a black and white scenario? If this can work, then the other thing can work as long as both people on both sides agree. You know, and I think the only maybe the difference is from the state nation state law, what they're saying 
is that this is a Jewish state. It's ours. You are more than welcome to come live here. That's what I'm saying. It can work. But I don't know, to be completely honest, I don't know, and that's a question, if the free Palestine uh, or from the river to the sea, would that include Jews inside this Palestine? That, if you ask me, we're both advocating for a two-state solution because that's but the only... But for someone who's calling from the river to the sea, would someone like that see Jews in a second-class citizens? I would say if we ask someone from the protest, because of the simplification of the conflict and how they think that what we just said, that Israelis are all foreign colonizers, um, I think they would say, yes, that it does mean free Palestine from Jewish people or in Jewish existence. Yes. But what I'm saying is that when you're, I tie it to what I said before, it's have dialogue, ask people what they mean, because especially in the West, they're just using slogans, I have to say. Like they're using slogans, they're chanting, because that's what we do, we follow. And slogans are catchy, so use mine. Yeah, you gave a perfect one. (laughs) I don't know what the problem is. Again, free us from occupation, Palestine is a free nation. Remember that one. And of course, this is only part of the conversation. We only highlighted a few things amongst various, various others that we will talk and dive into in future episodes. Um, I invite everyone to tell us what they want to listen to. Tell us what they want us to talk about. Absolutely. And we invite you to uh, write to us also. Uh, give us your questions. We had one question, actually, who asked us about uh, the two-state solution. Mm-hmm. And how do we how envision do we see it? it? Because uh, from that comment, it was basically stated that uh, uh, these uh, initiatives and attempts actually led to more wars. Mm -hmm. But I think from going back to everything that we said today, the problem is not the initiatives. The problem are two things. The people who are leading these initiatives and their willingness to go all the way towards that initiative without a fear. None of nobody really went all, all in. Maybe Robin is the only one did, and and look what happened to him. But in general, we need to be braver than we have been so far, and that's where the problem is. It's not in the attempts to make agreements; it's in how they um, resulted. And look at what's happening right now. I mean, where there is a war in Gaza, and no one's talking about the day after. I mean, it's a very small discussion in Israel about what's going to happen in Gaza after. Ibrahim, it's very difficult to talk about the day after when you have 240 uh, hostages and when you have people dying and when you're living under the constant threat of you don't know when there's an alarm going to come off. I can understand the people that can't talk about the day after and I can understand the people that are... Um, that rush to rush to any kind of like solution, like cease fire now, just bring them back, just bring them back. And they're not seeing what's going to happen after. I agree. And and my claim is not to the people. It's to the government. It's Absolutely. to the leadership. The leadership doesn't know what it wants in the day after. And that's the problem. Because the leaderships in Israel has have led us to the place where we are today. And they currently do not have a plan as they did not have a plan before. Exactly. We... It exploded in everybody's face on October 7th, that facade, uh, fake peace that people thought we live in. The bubble. In the most horrific way. And the, uh, and people, you know, everybody talks about, um, we need to eradicate Hamas and eliminate Hamas. And uh, uh, in Israel, there's a discussion as if it's like, a, it's a magic uh, thing to do. And it's important to emphasize, Hamas is not just a governing body. Hamas is an ideology. 
And ideologies cannot be eradicated like that. Ideologies can be changed with different ideologies. But when there are no other ideologies that exist, there is only one. And that's the problem that exists in Gaza. There is no alternative to Hamas. Israel never provided an alternative to Hamas. It never provided the people with any hope to leave Gaza. If you want to go to uh, uh, work and to go to Europe and study, you need to go through Israel. You had no any vision of a future that you can have. And the only one that provided anything in perspective to you in a context was, was Hamas. And if even if you eliminate every single member of Hamas and their ability to run as a governing body, and there is no Hamas in Gaza, it doesn't exist. And if you remember the movie Men in Black, they had that button when they erased people's memories if you went there and erased every single Gazan's memory that something uh, was called Hamas exists, if you maintain these people after this war blocked with two million people without any hope, something else will rise from, from within Gaza. It's not going to be called Hamas. It will be called something else. Hummus, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> it's irrelevant, but they will resist. And because of the reality on the ground, because they live something, they live towards something that creates a Hamas. If a Hamas trains trains people or recruits people, uh, the rockets that are falling, the occupation creates as many Hamas Hamas militants as Hamas recruits. Absolutely, because at the end, people come to Hamas in order to to find vengeance, find a path towards something, a, a goal. It provided people with a goal. Even if that goal is as horrific as going and murdering Jewish people, it was a goal that before there was no goal. Someone said it. I don't know who said it, but Gazans are born dead. They don't have, they don't see a light. And there's nothing more horrific, more scary than someone who's not afraid of losing everything. Someone who thinks that they've, they have nothing to lose. And what the state of Israel has done, in, in, in spe specifically since the blockade on Gaza, from 2008, 2009, until today, Israel has created the biggest recruitment center of the world. Two million people controlled by one terror group that is the only uh, uh, existing entity there, the only one that gives any goal whatsoever. Of course, people are going to join it. And if it's not going uh, to exist, people will form something. It will be another resistance movement. It will become armed. And with all the fanatic ideologies and the social media and the spread of them, these fanatic ideologies will also be incorporated and will be used. If we don't have a real solution, what we saw on October 7th is not a one-time thing. If it happens in 10 years, 20, 15, or in two, it, at the end, we are going towards the same results. And right now, the situation in the West Bank and in East Jerusalem is becoming worse and worse. Like for the people that are advocating for Palestinian rights, for the people on the pro-Palestinian side, and even on the Israeli side, should be aware of what's going on in the West Bank. Uh, it's not the focus of our episode, so we're not going to provide actual details, maybe next episode. But the situation is escalating. Settler violence is escalating extremely. Like Google Masafiryata. What's happening there is despicable. It's disgusting. And they're, we're leading towards a situation where violence is going to be unavoidable. It's going to explode in our face. Even again, again and again. And it's time to stop. It's time to take action. It's time for ceasefire, for the return of the hostages, and to start discussing real diplomatic uh, solutions. Because otherwise, we're staying in the same reality.
not for just the justice for, for October the 7th, not just for, for Gaza, a solution for all, where we all can live in peace, where we can all live in dignity. So that's everything that we have for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in, for listening. For those of you who are sharing our reels, sharing our, our, our Spotify link and our link everywhere on all platforms, we really appreciate it. And next time, we're going to talk about the uh, peace-building community. Uh, what, has, what have we been doing as a peace-building camp? Uh, where we failed? and where we can improve and specifics on what me and Ibrahim think should be implemented going on. How can we can both, as Palestinians and Israelis, survive and prosper post this war? And remember, at the end of the day, all of us, Israelis, Palestinians, Arabs and Jews, all of us deserve better. Mm-hmm.